You can turn to the book of 1 Peter. That's where we are this semester, 1 Peter. While you're turning there, I'll share a bit of, bit of trivia about myself. I have spent almost my entire life within 50 miles of this spot. I grew up in Tomball, about an hour south of here, and then I came to Texas A&M to study engineering, and it wasn't long into my career at A&M that I began to grow a little discontent with living here. You know, we, we don't have any mountains here. Uh, we don't have any beautiful forests with waterfalls and hiking trails. Uh, we really only have two seasons, hot and about to be hot. Uh, we, we really don't have a lot of exciting stuff to do, you know, not like the coast, not like the big cities on the coast. After a while, I kind of got tired of living here. I joined this club at A&M, the Outdoor Club. Our, our motto was get the heck out of College Station because that's all we wanted to do was get out of here. So I graduated and I packed my car and I moved up north moved up to D.C., and, and in D.C. I found beautiful hills with mountain biking trails and mountains about an hour and a half to the west, and, and it was a, a just beautiful forest with these pristine waterfalls that you could go to any time, and, and a really exciting city with, with museums and concerts and events that were all free. I got there, and I thought, man, this is where I've always wanted to live. This is what I've been looking forward to. Well, that sense of euphoria lasted uh, maybe a few days for me, <laughs> not really long before I realized, oh, D.C.'s not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, there's this horrendous traffic in D.C. You, you can't get anywhere, and, and it's really expensive to live in D.C. It's incredibly hard to find a place you can afford, and, and because it's so expensive, everyone works all the time to afford a place to live. They're working like 90 hours a week, so they never get to go to the forest or to the mountains or to the museums. They don't do any of that stuff because they're working all that time, and, and all that work, it makes them really grumpy. The people of D.C. were not very friendly. Now, I had my group of friends, but the, the average person that you meet in the store on the street, man, not friendly. And, and I'm a Texan. I, I expect people to interact with me in a friendly way. It, it grates on me when people are, are rude and grumpy. And, and one day I'd had enough. So, so I'm eating lunch in Georgetown, and I need to walk a few, down, a few blocks down the street to an ATM. And I decide, I, I've had it. I, as I walk down to this ATM, I'm going to say howdy to every person I come across. So I start out, I walk out to the street, and I start, and I see this guy, and I say howdy, and he, and he just totally ignores me, walks on by. I see a girl, I say howdy, she just looks at the ground. I, I see another guy, I say howdy, he gives me this look of death, wants nothing to do with me. I keep saying howdy to people, I'm getting nothing. And, and in fact, I see a guy about 10 yards out, and he sees what I'm doing, and he crosses the street. Dude crossed the street to avoid having somebody say hi to him. That's like the, the definition of unfriendly in my book. And so I keep saying howdy. I'm getting nothing. I, finally, I get to the ATM. I say my final howdy to this trio of girls that's passing by. One of them looks me straight in the eyes and says howdy back. I thought, there it is, the one person in D.C. who's friendly. I finally found her, so I strike up a conversation, only to find out, guess what? She lives in San Antonio. She's just there on vacation. She was a Texan, of course. One friendly person I ever met in D.C. was a Texan. It's about that time I realized it is time to go home. It's time to pack my bags and head back to the promised land of College Station, Texas. Been back here many years, never looked back. I'm so glad to be back here. It's friendly. There is a sane pace of life here. It is enjoyable. It's safe. I'm close to my family. I love it here. It took me moving all the way to Washington, D.C. to realize I had everything I was looking for right back here in College Station. I was wasting my time looking for it somewhere else. Well, unfortunately, that's, that's the same mistake that so many of us make when it comes to the good life. 
Remember, 1 Peter is about the good life. That's what we all want. We want to live the good life and we, we expend so much effort and time trying to find the good life in, in the next accomplishment, the next achievement, the next activity, the next possession. We're always seeking the good life. And, and this morning, Peter wants us to hit the pause button on that and step back for a moment and realize that for all of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we already have the good life. We don't need to look for the good life. It already belongs to us. All children of God have already been given the good life. We don't need to seek it in the things of this world. Let's review for a minute from last week. Uh, we, We asked ourselves, what is the good life? And we discovered from the book of 1 Peter, the good life is the imitation of Jesus Christ. That's a logical conclusion from scripture. Who lived the best life ever? Well, Jesus No one has ever lived a better life than him. In his earthly life, he experienced more joy and peace and love and significance than any person ever has in the history of the earth. And then when his earthly life came to an end, he he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he received from God infinite glory and honor for all of eternity. No one has ever lived a better life than Jesus Christ. So if you want to live the good life, just follow the logical conclusion, you must imitate Jesus Christ. The closer you imitate Christ, the closer you share in his good life. That's the definition of the good life, the imitation of Jesus Christ. What Peter wants us to recognize in the passage we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter 1 is that that good life already belongs to you. You already have access to all of the good life of Jesus Christ. God has given it to all of his children. Peter wants us to quit looking for the good life in the things of this world. Quit wasting our time looking for it in this world. You won't find it here. Instead, he wants us to fall on our knees and worship and praise before God this morning and thank him that he's already given it to us. He has already given us the best life imaginable. It's already ours. So let's look at that. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Start with me in verse 3. It's a short passage we're looking at this morning. Start in verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A passage begins with really the only command of the passage, blessed be God. That that means may God be worshiped, may he be praised, may he be thanked. Peter is calling us to thank God, to praise him. And then the rest of the passage, he lists out why. Why is God worthy of our thanks? Why is he worthy of our praise? And, And what Peter is trying to teach us in this passage is that God is worthy of our thanks. He's worthy of our praise because he has been at work in our lives, giving us the good life in the past been at work in the past securing for us the good life and he's at work in the present making the good life possible for us and he will continue to be at work in the future that's what peter lists out god's work in our lives in the past in the present and in the future and i want to walk us through that i want us to see what god has done in our past what he's doing in our present what he will do in the future that gives us the good life that gives us access to the good life peter starts in the past He tells us that in the past, God secured for all believers the good life, first through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
2,000 years ago, most significant event in history, Jesus died and rose again. That secured for all of us the good life. At the end of verse 3, Peter says, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that, that preposition through is very significant. It means that everything else in this passage, all the good stuff in this passage, like new birth and hope and inheritance and salvation and protection, all of that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here in church, you know, we, we often talk about the death of Jesus. It's really significant that Jesus died for us. He took our sins upon himself and died in our place. That is very significant, but we need to be careful that we don't forget to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus. If the story of Jesus' life ended on the cross, that would be exceedingly bad news, incredibly bad news. We have hope, we have life, because it didn't end there because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul makes that point, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ or have died in Christ have perished. It's over for them. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we don't have forgiveness. We don't have life after death. We don't have hope without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely essential to everything good in our life that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, now fortunately for us, God has provided tons of evidence to prove to us beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus really did rise from the dead. God's provided plenty of evidence, both in Scripture and in history, to demonstrate the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And and if you're not familiar with that evidence, I want to give you something that you can turn to. Uh, Go to our website. We've written an article that gives you about three pages of biblical and historical evidence for the life and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go to the website grace-bible.org. Click Downloads, then click Leader Resources, and you'll see an article, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we've written for you guys. Uh, If you're not familiar with that stuff, if you don't know how to explain to someone why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, please, this week, go, go look at that article. What that article, I think, will show you is that it's actually more of a leap to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead than that he did. There's that much evidence in scripture and in history to demonstrate the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It is more reasonable to believe that he rose from the dead than that he didn't. So please familiarize yourself with that so that you can give an explanation to those who ask, to those who doubt. You can show them we're not just taking a leap of faith here. It's reasonable to believe that he rose from the dead. That's central. That's essential to all of our hopes. So it's, it's really a gracious thing that God has given us all this evidence, all this proof of the resurrection of Christ because it's essential to everything we hope for. Everything good in our lives flows out of the resurrection. And the, the first thing that Peter tells us flows out of the resurrection is our new birth. That's the second thing that God did in our past to secure for us the good life. He caused us to be born again. Now, now that phrase is, is pretty self-explanatory. It just means to be born a second time. Peter is, is connecting with the language of Jesus in John chapter 3 when he was speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus the only way into the kingdom of God is to be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that happens at the moment we believe the gospel. We're born again through faith. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and gives us eternal life as a gift. The moment you believe that good news, God causes you to be born a second time. Okay, you were born the first time to your earthly mom and dad. You're born the second time to your heavenly father. 
You were born the first time through the the biological processes of your mom's body. You're born the second time through the supernatural, life-giving, creative work of the Holy Spirit. This is very significant terminology that Peter uses. I think it's hard to imagine a, a more sweeping, radical term to describe the change that happened to us at the moment that we believe. This idea of new birth, it's actually a source of incredible eternal security if you understand it. Think, think about it for a minute. Becoming a Christian is not like joining a club. A, a club, you, you join it today, you can leave it tomorrow, but that's not what happened to you. You didn't join a club, you were reborn. Think about the metaphor of birth. When a person is born, think about biological birth, once they're born, that is a fact of history that can never be undone. They can lose their birth certificate. That doesn't mean they weren't born. Everybody knows it's self-evident. You exist, therefore you were born. You cannot give back your birth. No one can take your birth from you. Once born, always born. You can't be unborn. That makes no sense. Well, that's true for our spiritual rebirth as well, for our born-againness. You, you can't unreborn yourself. You can't give it back to God. No one can take it from you. Once you are reborn, you are always reborn. Once God makes you spiritually alive through the power of his spirit, you can never lose that because it's like birth. It is unlosable by definition. So this is actually a cause of of great eternal security for us. Christianity is something you can't give back. You can't lose your salvation. No one can take it from you because it's not like joining a club. It's like birth. Once born, always born. Now that new birth, that's what gives you access to the good life. You know from other scriptures that when we are first born, our first birth, we are born spiritually dead. We're unable to please God. Everything we do is sin. We're unable to imitate Christ. We're unable to live the good life. But then God causes us to be reborn through the power of his Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, we can imitate Christ. We have spiritual ability because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We have the ability to imitate the example of Jesus Christ and experience the good life now and forever. So it's our new birth that gives us access to the good life of Jesus Christ. So in the past, God secured for us the good life through the resurrection of Jesus and through our new birth. But God is still at work in the present. He is at work in our lives as well today. We mentioned last week how we who believe in Jesus Christ, we are exiles on earth. Uh, That means that that, that this earth is not our home. It means that we're going to face opposition and difficulty as long as we live in this world. Yet in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of that opposition and persecution that we face, we can experience the good life because God is at work in us right now sustaining the good life in the present. He's sustaining us in the good life first by giving us a living hope. Notice that in verse 3. You're born again to a living hope. Hope. That's the first thing that sustains us in the good life in the midst of a difficult world, a hostile world. Uh, Let's talk about that term for a minute, hope. What does hope mean? Well, in English vernacular, how we use the word here in America, hope usually refers to a wish, to a desire that might come true or might not come true. It, It might be a likely thing, like the Aggies beating SFA. It's likely can probably count on that. Uh, Or it might be an unlikely thing, like you winning the lottery. Probably not going to happen. Either way, whether it's likely or unlikely, hope in English means a a wish, a desire that might or might not come true. You don't know. Well, that's not at all what hope means in Scripture. When you see the word hope in the Bible, this is what it means. A confident expectation of good things to come. 
Hope in scripture is not based on probability. It's not based on likelihood or chance. It's based on confident assurance. Usually hope in the Bible is used of our hope in the promises of God. Okay? God's promises, his fulfillment of his promises to us, that's not based on chance or probability. If the God of the Bible exists, then he will certainly fulfill his promises. The Bible says he's all-powerful. He is always true to his word. Therefore, what God has promised, that he will do. There's no sense of chance or probability with biblical hope. It's certain, it's secure. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews 6, he challenges us and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope till the end. Biblical hope is based on assurance, on security, on confidence. What God has said he'll do for you, he will do. Biblical hope gives you confidence because it is certain. It is secure. Biblical hope is, I like to think of it this way, it's the hope of engagement. I don't know if you guys have hung out with engaged people much. I was talking to an engaged couple this week and what struck me uh, was how smiley they were. Always smiling, kind of, kind of bouncing in their seats, just really happy, joyful people. Um, joyful despite the fact that engagement is really hard. If you're married, you know the truth of what I'm about to say. Engagement is really tough. You have all the work of marriage without the benefits. Engagement is a really hard time. I got engaged and one of my best friends called me up and said, well, Blake, welcome to purgatory. <laughs> that's what engagement is. It's purgatory. It's hard. It's difficult. You got temptation. You got all this work. You can't live together. You're separated. Oh, it's so hard. Why are they joyful then? Why are engaged people always smiling? Because they have this kind of hope. Not hope based on chance, not hope based on probability, hope based on confident assurance. Short of death, in a few short weeks or months, they're going to be married. In a short time, life is going to get better. That's the hope of the Bible, that their best days are yet to come. When they get married, life will get better. That's the hope that gives them joy and smiles on their face, even in the difficulty of engagement. That's the hope that we have. We have confident assurance that our best days are yet to come. Our best days are not now. They're in the future when God fulfills his promises to us. And those promises aren't based on chance. They're not based on probability. They're not based on a desire or a wish. They're based on confidence, on assurance that God will certainly fulfill his word to us. That's the kind of hope we have, that life is only gonna get better for us in the future. Now, Peter calls that kind of hope that we have a living hope. He means a life-giving hope, a hope that gives us joy and peace and security in this life. He's contrasting our living hope with the dead hope of this world. And the, the predominant religion in Peter's day, the religion of the cities to which he wrote, was Greek mythology. That's what they believed, all the Greek gods, all the stories about the Greek gods. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last couple of years, there's been a resurgence of Greek mythology in young adult literature and in the box office. You've seen that. A number of movies that have come out celebrating Greek mythology and a number of books written to kids celebrating Greek mythology. Uh, and actually, I was reading in the New York Times that this summer, there, there were a number of camps all, all around the United States where kids would get together and pretend that they were demigods and they would fight out the battles of Greek mythology with plastic swords and cardboard shields and have a really fun time. And, and sure enough, Greek mythology, it, it, it's fun until you realize what they said would happen after we died. You guys familiar with that? You say Greek mythology. What happens to all human beings after we die? No matter whether we're good or bad, we all go here. All human beings in Greek mythology end up in a place called Hades, the underworld. A place of fire and darkness, of unending torment and regret. That's the future of all humanity in Greek mythology. 
Peter's saying our hope, our hope is living that hope, that's dead hope. In Greek mythology, your best days are right now. You've got nothing to look forward to but that. That reminds me of the predominant worldview here in academia today. What's the predominant worldview? Atheism. That's a dead hope. Atheism proclaims that your best life is right now because this is the only life you get. This life is going to end in sickness and pain and death and then it's game over. That's it. And in some millions of years, all of us as a human race will die out. It will all be done. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what kind of life you live. It will all burn out. That's dead hope. That doesn't give you joy. That doesn't give you peace. That doesn't give you security. Peter wants us to understand that's not our hope. Our hope is living. Our hope says that our best days are in the future. Our best days are in eternity when we stand before Jesus Christ. That's what we have to look forward to. It's a living hope that gives us joy and peace and significance and security even when, li- when life is tough. That's what God gives us. He secures us in the good life through this living hope that he has filled us with. It's the first thing that Peter mentions that God is doing in the present in our lives right now. Second thing he mentions is that God is right now protecting us. That's the beginning of verse five. We who are protected by the power of God through faith. Uh, This word protected, it, it means to garrison, like garrisoning a city with soldiers, surrounding it with soldiers to protect it from enemies. God's saying, I I garrison you. I put my garrison around you. Not, Not a garrison of soldiers, but a garrison of my power. My omnipotent, almighty power surrounds you, protects you. Well, that's good news because we need protection in this world. We we are exiles living in a hostile world. We constantly face opposition in this world. And God is saying in the midst of that opposition, you have no need to be afraid. You have no need to be afraid because my omnipotent power surrounds you. My omnipotent hands guard you. They shield you from the attacks of this world. No one can steal your hope. No one can steal your new birth. No one can steal what's coming to you in the future because it's me protecting you and I am omnipotent. The only way to touch us, the only way to threaten us is if someone could defeat God and no one's gonna do that. It it reminds me of the Allstate commercial. You're in good hands with Allstate. What are they saying there? They're saying you're in good hands with with a strong company, a financially secure company. You can have security because of how strong we are. Well, uh, the hands of Allstate are nothing compared to the hands of God. God wants us to understand you're in good hands with me. The omnipotent, almighty hands of of the creator of the universe surround you personally and protect you and shield you. That's why you can live the good life, even in a hostile world, because you know they can't touch you. They can't steal your hope. They can't steal your salvation. They can't steal your new birth because I'm protecting you. So God, he, he sustains us in the good life. That's what he's doing right now in our lives by giving us a living hope, a life-giving, joyful hope, and by protecting us with his omnipotent hands, he shields us. But God is not just at work in our past and in our present. He is also at work in our future. And actually, that's where Peter's gonna turn next. He's gonna tell us that, that the best work of God in our lives is yet for the future. The best thing of the good life, the best life that we will have is future for us. Peter tells us that in the future, God is going to satisfy the good life for us. He is going to fulfill the promises of the good life. We will be completely satisfied in the future when God does a couple things. First, when he gives us our secure inheritance, that's verse 4. Peter says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance is, is a possession that comes to you by virtue of a relationship. 
So, so it's like the, the property and wealth that a child receives from their parent. Well, we have a new parent, a heavenly father, and he has promised us an inheritance. And in this passage, Peter doesn't flesh out exactly what the inheritance is, but in other passages, the New Testament does. New Testament tells us that our inheritance, the inheritance of all believers, includes eternal life, a face-to-face, intimate, personal relationship with God for all eternity. That's what eternal life is. That's part of your inheritance. And it includes resurrection. You will receive these bodies back after you die, but they will be perfected, free of sickness and pain and aging and death. You'll receive a body just like Jesus did after the resurrection. That's perfect in every way. That's part of your inheritance. And we'll receive the opportunity to participate in Christ's kingdom on earth. That's part of our inheritance. Jesus is gonna come back at some point in the future and he is going to take over the earth. He's gonna rule over the earth and we have the opportunity to share in his reign, to become co-rulers of the earth in the millennial kingdom. That's part of our inheritance. And finally, participation in the new heavens and the new earth. After the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ ruling on earth, God is going to wipe out this universe and he's going to recreate it. A new heavens and a new earth that's going to be glorious and unimaginably wonderful. And part of our inheritance is we get to participate in that for all eternity. We get to enjoy the glories and blessings of the new heavens and the new earth for all of time. That's your inheritance. That's your heavenly inheritance. That's what's in store for you in the future. Now, Peter doesn't flesh out what the inheritance is here. Instead, he spends his time talking to us about how secure it is. Do you notice Peter sounds um, a little repetitive in this verse? He tells us, first of all, our inheritance, it's, it's imperishable. That means that it's impervious to corruption. It won't rust. It won't decay. And, and he tells us that it's undefiled. That means that it's pure. It's not mixed with things of lesser value. It's not watered down. And he tells us that our heavenly inheritance, it's unfading. It will never lose its pristine quality, its infinite value. And he concludes by saying our heavenly inheritance, it's reserved in heaven for you by God. The same omnipotent hands that surround you, surround your inheritance. It can't be taken from you. Peter's repetitive there because he wants to help us understand the difference between our heavenly inheritance and our earthly inheritance. Whatever you receive from your parents, whether money or land or or possessions, all of that is going to fade away. Some time from now, it will lose its value. It will decay. It's not going to make it into eternity. Peter wants you to understand that is of no value compared to what you get from your heavenly father. The inheritance he has in store for you, it is absolutely secure. It will never diminish in value. Recession will never affect it. Deflation will never affect it. It is of infinite value and it will always be of infinite value. Peter's giving us confidence here because in in our imitation of Christ, as we follow Christ in a hostile world, it's gonna cost us. If you haven't seen that already, you will at some point in your life. Choosing to obey Jesus Christ is gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you something in this life. Peter wants you to understand whatever you end up giving up in this life for the sake of following Christ, it's nothing compared to what Christ will give you in the future. Whatever following Christ costs you now, it's nothing, it's valueless compared to what you will gain in the future. Your heavenly inheritance makes all the riches of this world look like nothing in comparison. And so that's the first thing that Peter points us to. We have this great hope in the future because one day we will receive our inheritance from God the Father. An inheritance of infinite value that never will fade, that never will perish, it will always be ours. Second thing he directs our hope to, second thing in the future, we will be satisfied in the future when we receive the culmination of our salvation. So Peter talks about at the end of verse five, look back there. So we've been protected through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter talks about salvation as a future thing, a salvation that will come, it will be revealed in the last time. That's, that's a cue for the return of Christ. When Jesus returns, your salvation will be revealed. Now, it's helpful to know that in the book of 1 Peter, Peter's gonna talk about salvation as a past tense thing and as a present tense thing and as a future thing. So let me ask you a question real quick. Think about yourself. Are you already saved or are you being saved right now or will you be saved in the future? Which is true of you? According to Peter, all three of them. They're, they're all true. You should just say yes. <laughs> yes to all of those. I've been saved in the past. I'm being saved at the moment. I will be saved in the future. When Peter, when he talks about salvation, I think of it, I think of it as, as like you're receiving a Christmas present. I think about you're receiving a, a Christmas present. The first, first part of it is actually the reception of the gift. It's handed to you. You put your hands on it. Now it belongs to you. It's now your present. That's salvation past tense. That, that happened at a moment in time when we placed our faith in the gospel. We, we were justified is the language that we use. God declared us righteous. He gave us the gift of eternal life and we can never lose it. That's salvation past tense. We received the gift. Okay, but then what do you do? Well, you, you don't just hold the gift. You begin to tear it open. You take the bow off it. You take the wrapping off it. You begin to unpack the box. That's salvation present tense. That's what hopefully we're doing right now. We're, we call it sanctification. We begin to unpack our salvation. We begin to experience salvation in our daily lives as we grow to be more like Jesus Christ. That's present tense salvation. Okay, but it's not over yet. Hopefully it doesn't end with just unwrapping the present. Best part is still to come. When you've unwrapped it and you reach in and you pick up this gift that you've been given, that's the best part. That's future salvation. When we stand before Jesus Christ and finally we reach into the package and we grasp all that God has in store for us. Peter's talking about that kind of salvation, future salvation, the culmination of it. When you reach in and you see all that God has planned for you for all eternity, Peter's point is that the best part of your salvation is in the future. You have been saved, you are being saved, but the best is yet to come. Your best life is not now. Your best life is in the future. When you stand before Jesus Christ and you reach into the package and you grasp the inheritance and the salvation that God has planned for you for all eternity, your best life is future. That's what Peter wants us to see. Good life is good now, but it's better then. When we stand with Jesus Christ, when we who are are right now exiles on earth, we become rulers of earth with Jesus Christ. That's what awaits us in the future. Okay, so let me put all this back on the board real quick. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. We've, we've looked, it's, it's just ironic. It's a very short passage, just three verses. Yet Peter hits all of this ground. He covers all of these things. And, and so how do we apply what we've learned this morning? Well, the application is self-evident. It's right there at the beginning of verse three. Blessed be God. Peter is calling us to worship. He's calling us to praise God, to thank God for all that God has done for us. So my, my big application for all of us, uh, the, the, we would be remiss if we didn't take some opportunity this week to just hit pause on life for like 10 minutes and sit down, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and spend 10 minutes turning each phrase of that passage into worship. I want to challenge everyone in this room, take 10 minutes sometime this week and simply reflect back over this passage and do what it says. Bless the name of God for what he has done. Thank God for each of these things. Thank him for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank him that he didn't leave the son in the grave. That would have left us no hope. Thank him that he raised Jesus from the dead. Thank him that Jesus was too powerful for death. Thank him for giving us new birth. 
That God did not leave us dead in our sins, but he caused us to be born again to life that we can never lose. Thank him for the hope that we have, that we have a living hope, that we believe that our best days are yet to come. Thank him for his protection, that he doesn't leave us vulnerable, but that he surrounds us with his omnipotent hands. Thank him for the secure inheritance that awaits us, that our best life is in the future when we receive all of these things from God. And thank him for salvation, that salvation isn't complete yet, that as great as it is to be saved, our best is yet to come when we receive everything from God. Take this passage and use it as an opportunity for worship sometime this week. That's my my first application for you. Second, as we walk through this, if this was new to you, or if maybe you've seen it before, but, but um, you really don't know how you could share this with someone else, you don't know uh, how to defend these, these different points that Peter tells us are true, I want to encourage you, um, we have a class coming up starting next week at this hour, 11 o'clock. It's a class near and dear to my heart. It's called Essentials of the Christian Faith. It'll run for 10 weeks at the 11 o'clock hour starting next week. You can sign up online. Uh, We're gonna walk you through 10 lessons on the foundations of the Christian faith. We will cover all of this stuff in detail. Not just help you see that it's true, but see why it's true. We'll, We'll help you know how you can explain this to someone else, how you can give hope to others by walking them through these truths. So if this stuff is new or if you don't know how to explain it, let me encourage you, please sign up for the essentials of the Christian faith. Starts next week at the 11 o'clock hour and you can sign up online. Just go to grace-bible.org and you can sign up there. Third and final application I wanna, want us to think about this week is the idea of hope. I wanna ask you, what are you hoping in? Where, where is your hope fixed today? What are you hoping in that gets you through the day? When life is tough, where is your hope fixed? Is it fixed in something in this world? In the Aggies winning? Or in class going well? Or in getting a promotion at work? Or a raise? Or going on a vacation? Or meeting a new guy or girl? Or whatever it is. Is that where your hope is fixed? If, if it is, you gotta know that's, that's a dead hope. That's a hope that ultimately will disappoint. That's a hope that ultimately cannot get you through the hard patches of life. I want to challenge you. Peter's very clear here. Our hope should be completely fixed on the grace that's coming in the future for us. Your hope should be fixed on what's going to happen the moment that you stand face to face with Jesus Christ. And you receive from him the inheritance that God has planned for all of time for you. When you receive from him eternal life and resurrection and a share in his kingdom over the earth and participation in the new heavens and the new earth, that's where you should be hoping. That's where your hope should be fixed because that's secure, that's living, that gives you life, that gives you joy if you will fix your hope on the next life. I've learned in the last number of years in my life that sometimes for believers, It's good to look forward to death. It's good to look forward to the next life. Now that sounds kind of morbid to look forward to death, but as believers, we have a living hope that tells us our best life comes after death. Our best life comes in the next life when we receive everything that God has planned for us, our inheritance, our salvation. That gives me hope. No matter how tough this life gets, no matter how disappointing it is, no matter how painful it is, no matter how much I suffer, I have hope because I know this is not my best life. This is not my best days. My best days are yet to come in the future when I stand face to face with my Savior and receive from Him the glory of my inheritance, the culmination of my salvation, and enjoy forever the gift He has in store for me. Let's go before the Lord and let's thank him for what he's done in the past, 
what he's doing in the present, and what he will do for us in the future. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Lord God, we acknowledge that absolutely every single thing that's good in our life comes from you. You are the author and creator of good. Lord, we are so grateful for all the good that you have given us. We praise you for what we've learned in this passage, that in the past, by raising your son from the dead, you have given us new birth. You've given us spiritual life that we can never lose, Lord. Thank you so much for that, that that's a settled fact. Lord, thank you that in the present, you continue to give us hope, a living hope, a powerful hope. You continue to protect us with your omnipotent hands, Lord. Thank you so much for that. Nothing can threaten us. We are completely safe in your hands. And thank you, Lord, for the future, that our best life is yet to come. When we receive our inheritance for you, thank you, Lord, we're not worthy of that. We don't deserve any of the stuff that we get from you. Thank you so much that you have so much in store for us in the future. Lord, uh, we pray that we would be people of hope, that we would be people whose eyes are fixed on the life to come, not the things of this world, but the things of the next world. Lord, we pray that we would be people full of joy and peace and, and happiness because our hope is fixed in you. It's fixed in what you will do for us in the future. Thank you so much, Lord. You are worthy of all our thanks, of all our praise, of all our worship. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that you've done all of this through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.